0: Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry and today we have a very special guest. We have...
1: I'm Kat Achen. I'm
0: an acute medicine trainee in the West Midlands. And welcome. So we're just going to go straight into a case. Okay, so I'm going to present you a case, Cat. You know nothing about this case. Yep. Okay, and I'm going to see what you're going to do when you're the registrar on call and I'm at home. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> so... 86-year-old man, he presents with back pain. And this was actually a patient I saw two weekends ago when I was working the weekend. Okay, okay. so I wasn't at home really, I was working. So 86-year-old um, man presented with lower back pain and he said it sort of started in the mid part of his back radiating down to his bottom region. This back pain had started two days previously, very acute. He had no injury to it. He hadn't fell. He had no trauma. He does not remember doing anything that could have caused this to happen. He was now unable to mobilise. Now, one day after the pain started, he was able to move. But when I saw him in hospital, he was completely unable to mobilise. And he said he couldn't move his legs at all. There was some movement in the bed of his legs, but he couldn't stand and he certainly couldn't walk. He also said that the pain was keeping him awake at night. So the night before he'd been unable to sleep. And he noticed that this was getting worse and worse and worse. And in the morning, it was unbearable. And it didn't matter what pain relief he tried. He'd had some paracetamol and some codeine. The pain was just exquisite. He'd also noticed that when he'd been to the toilet the day before, He'd been able, he wasn't able to go on this step, but when he'd been to the toilet and he'd been straining, he felt that the pain was actually a little bit worse. Apart from that, he didn't really complain of anything. He said that his um, bowels were okay the day before when he tried to open his bowels, his bladder was okay, he hadn't had any incidents of incontinence, and he knew when he needed to weep. He denied any of the fevers, he denied weight loss, he had a good appetite generally he actually felt quite well in himself apart from the pain of significant history here is he had prostatic carcinoma so i've presented that presentation knowing he's got a past medical history of prostate cancer what are you concerned about
1: so if he's got an active cancer yeah and he's come in with this severe acute back pain yeah and isn't able to move his legs as he normally would do, um, is whether this could be related to some spinal disease. So has he got um, metastasis to the spine? And is there any chance that he could have a cord compression?
0: Okay, so that's the key thing, isn't it? We need to make sure that this man does not have metastatic spinal cord compression. Absolutely. This is a medical emergency that we need to sort out. In his past medical history, he'd previously had a DVT and he had a triple A. So an abdominal aortic aneurysm. But apart from that, nothing else of note. Medication-wise, he was on bicalutamide, 50 milligrams once daily, for the prostate malignancy. But he wasn't on any other medication. So his DVT wasn't being treated. It was an old one. He lived at home with his wife. They had stairs at home, which is really important because obviously he's now unable to mobilise it's really worth thinking about that and sort of the social impact this is going to have on him wasn't really allergic to anything didn't smoke didn't drink any alcohol aside from that nothing else of note really in the history so on examination what are the key things that we really need to look for on this person who you think's got metastatic spinal cord compression
1: so you need to make sure that you've done a thorough neurological examination mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that you haven't just looked at his legs as well. Mm-hmm. So do a neurological examination of the legs, looking for power on each side, look at his reflexes, yeah. look to see whether sensations um, involved, mm-hmm. um, and have a look at his abdomen and back yeah. in looking at sensation whether there's any sensation change or loss absolutely yeah um and he also needs a pr as well mm-hmm. um so looking for whether there's any change in perianal sensation or any change in anal tone
0: yeah absolutely so you mentioned a few key things there one you mentioned the spine and the pain so some patients can get localized spinal tenderness and there. so it's really important to look for that and also on examination, as you said, they might have weakness, difficulty morting, and sensory loss in the bowels and in the bladder. They also may have the pins and needles sensation or any other signs or symptoms suggestive of spinal cord compression. But the immobility is key, as well as localised pain and the changes on the per rectum examination. So when we examined this gentleman, um, starting off with tone, it was actually normal which we would expect anyway, because it's probably going to be a, to be a lower motor neuron lesion. His power, when we examined his power, it was four out of five in the left lower limb globally, but five out of five in the right lower
1: limb. Okay.
0: Sensation was globally decreased. Um, and on examination of his per rectal examination, it was normal anal tone and sensation. Okay. So, one of the key things when you think somebody's got spinal cord compression is when you do PR, is to actually get them to try and grip on the finger, not just doing a PR examination, because it's that grip that's really important, and it's that that can be lost as well as the anal sensation. So, it didn't quite fit with metastatic spinal cord compression, but there are obviously varying degrees of severity. So, the key thing, however, is we still need to make sure that this man doesn't have spinal cord compression. So. What are you going to do investigation wise? Where are you going to
1: start? Um, So an MRI. Okay. Of the whole spine. Why the whole spine? Uh, Because you can't be entirely sure of the level of the cord compression Mm -hmm. from your examination. Yeah. So you always need to image the whole spine if you think there might be any cord compression.
0: And how
1: quickly does that MRI need to be done? So it should be done as soon as possible Mm -hmm. um, because the quicker you do it, the quicker you can start treatment, Mm -hmm. which makes it more likely that you'll stop any further neurological deterioration. Absolutely.
0: Um,
1: But the maximum should be within 24 hours. And
0: the NICE guidance on the management of metastatic spinal cord compression clearly states within 24 hours. It's actually quite an old guideline that was published in 2008 by NICE, but this is actually currently being updated. So there is work currently being done on this. So as you said, you're going to do an MRI of the whole spine. Each hospital should have a metastatic spinal cord compression coordinator who you can contact. This may be the oncologist on call, the oncological registrar on call. It may be the acute oncology service, but there will be somebody within that hospital who is able to help coordinate and support the management of this patient. So aside from the urgent MRI spine that you need to get done, what else do you need to do?
1: Um, so you need to do some blood tests okay. for him, particularly thinking about checking his calcium. Absolutely. So his calcium was normal at
0: 2.38. What else would you like to do? What else might be elevated in bony disease? His
1: alkaline phosphatase. Yes. Yeah. So
0: his alkaline phosphatase is 543. So normal limits It's sort of looking about 100, so very high, which could indicate either liver disease or it could indicate bony disease. So, because that indicates bone turnover, this could it's not often rated in an acute setting unless it's a fracture um, and it normally indicates underlying bony disease. So, does he have already have metastases within his bone that has now become a spinal cord compression? That's possible. Okay, rest of his liver function was normal. Kidney function was normal. Albumin, 36. So not bad for somebody who's got prostatic malignancy. White cell count was 11.48. Neutrophils were 9.79. Important to think about these things because when you've got spinal tenderness and back pain, could this be dyskitis? Is he immunosuppressed? Potentially. It's always worth having at the back of your mind. CRP of 6. Okay. And a hemoglobin of 105. So nothing really too glaringly awful. The haemoglobin, looking at his trend, had been around this anyway. and We know that he has a malignancy, so that could account for that. Would you try and do any other
1: form of scan at this point? I suppose if you had any worry about urinary retention, you could do a bladder scan. Really good point, absolutely. And that's what I wanted you to say.
0: These patients are obviously at very high risk of... Bladder retention, urinary retention. And what can happen if you have a patient who's got urinary retention? What do they often complain of? Pain. Yeah. Huge amounts of pain and huge discomfort. And if you've got somebody who's retaining all the urine, they could get UTIs, urinary tract infection, which is obviously what you want to try and prevent. Yeah. So you mentioned imaging, do an MRI of his whole spine. We did this and it showed multiple. Metastatic deposits, worse in the lumbar spine, the sacrum, and the iliac bone. He also had compression at the T8, so a little bit higher. T the, the thoracic at the thoracic region at number eight was compressed, and this was diagnosed as metastatic spinal cord compression. Okay. Out of interest, his PSA was forty-five point six. Micrograms per litre, which is obviously exceptionally high which shows that the malignancy is still very very active We managed to get this MRI scan within 16 hours So not bad. However, what do we need to do before we get there that MRI scan? How can we manage him? What do we need to make sure if we're
1: considering spinal cord compression, so You need to think about how you're mobilising him. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Would you mobilise him? No. They shouldn't be allowed to mobilise on their own until you're sure that there's nothing unstable. Absolutely, yeah. And that can only be done after the MRI.
0: Yeah. So they should be nursed flat with a neutral spine alignment. So nurses should be able to log roll the patient. Okay, so sometimes it, it's a different way of manoeuvring patients. they should be log rolled. And also if they need the toilet, obviously you can't move them on and off the toilet. So either use a pan or you may consider catheterization at this point, particularly if they're going into bladder retention. And obviously the patient's on bed rest. So what must they also be on?
1: So they need some BTE prophylaxis. Absolutely.
0: So they're either going to use high length compression stockings, consider anoxaparin or low molecular weight heparin as well for preventative. Absolutely. At this stage, who else are you going to contact apart from the
1: care coordinator? Who else do you want involved in this care? So I do, the, the acute oncology team or his oncologist. Yeah. What about the weekend? So, uh, so an oncologist yeah if it was at the weekend mm-hmm. um might not necessarily be his oncologist but there should be an hematology uh, oncology team yeah
0: absolutely so there should be somebody around shouldn't there who can speak
1: to... yeah so we've initially
0: managed him and we know now we're going to do an mri we've talked about the mri results um
1: what about if you don't have mri in your hospital so the the I think there should be a way of regionally coordinating the MRIs. Mm -hmm. So you should be able to access a service Mm -hmm. that's going to be able to arrange an MRI for you, even Mm -hmm. if it's not at your centre. Yeah. Because you you can't completely exclude a cord compression with anything other than MRI. Yeah, absolutely. If patients can't have an MRI
0: because they've either got a pacemaker, one of the older ones that is activated, it's still magnetic, or they've got any other reason, for why an MRI is contraindicated, speak to the coordinator about suggestions and the radiologist, and you can do a targeted CT scan with reconstruction to try and assess whether that's a possibility. However, as you rightly say, the best thing to do is an MRI. Plain radiography is completely pointless, really. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so we've got a person. We know now that he's got metastatic spinal cord compression. We now have to think about how we manage him. So mobilization we've talked about. We're not going to mobilize or early mobilization when we've stabilized the core compression. Pressure ulcers. Yeah. Really important that when they're on bed rest that they are log rolled every two to three hours. If they are not on bed rest and it's stable, we can mobilize them a lot more frequently. But it's really important that the people looking after him are aware of that. Bowels and bladder. So if they are incontinence, Obviously, we can put a urinary catheter in. What's the risks of having lots and lots of urine if they don't have a catheter and they're just passing urine?
1: Well, see, you you can get skin damage from irritation Uh from from the urine, Uh, particularly, as you said, if he's he's not going to be able to mobilise on his own. So he's at risk of skin damage Mm -hmm. even more so, and as you said, the pressure ulcers Mm -hmm. as well.
0: So urine burns, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: What about his bowels? So I know some patients who've had spinal problems, mm-hmm. you, you need to keep an eye on whether they're opening their bowels regularly. Absolutely. And make sure that they're not getting constipated. And if they do develop problems with constipations, constipation, it may be something that he needs to have suppositories or enemas for to keep his yeah. bowels opening regularly. Because that can cause pain as well, can't it? So the NICE do a good guideline
0: on managing faecal incontinence... In patients with neurological or spinal disease, so it's quite useful. It's sort of again, it's quite common sense, but it talks about diet, softeners, laxatives. Whether we use Movicol, whether we use glycerin suppositories, sometimes manual evacuation is needed, particularly if a patient's very, very constipated. And in extreme situations, sometimes people have had surgery, so we need to prevent that. So it's really important that prevention is better than cure. So we make sure that we keep their bowels moving regularly. Absolutely. Um, patients, obviously, if they are going to be completely immobile, then obviously they are at risk of developing pneumonia. They're going to be in bed a long time. Also, if they have known to have heart failure, pulmonary edema. So we can't just focus on the core compression. It's also obviously when we examine them on a day-to-day basis, think about what could happen. So Drugs. We're going to give this man to treat his spinal cord compression.
1: So he needs some IV dexamethasone. Yes. And he also needs PPI cover Ah. to go with the dexamethasone. Absolutely. Yeah. How much dexamethasone are you going to give? Um, So they have quite a high dose for spinal cord compression. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's 16 milligrams twice a day.
0: Yeah, so we start with 16 milligrams. um, And it's a short course of 16 milligrams dexamethasone daily. Oh, the treatment is being planned um, and then often when you start when you're going to go for surgery or radiotherapy, then we eventually want to stop the dexamethasone. Why is that? why don't we want to give patients long term dexamethasone
1: so so the dexamethasone in the when you're using it acutely is to try and help with the, the swelling, mm-hmm. so it doesn't actually solve the underlying problem is there is a to kind of prevent further neurological deterioration mm-hmm. um so you, you should only need that up until you've had your definitive treatment yeah and then if you're on the dexamethasone long term then you start getting the steroid side effects mm-hmm. so things like the gastric irritation um you might lose your own kind of Immune response. Steroid synthesis and.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you are thinking think about the adrenal glands. Yeah. Okay. You might get adrenal insufficiency.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and high dose methadone is not necessarily pleasant for patients either because it can affect their sleeping. Absolutely. Um, so it's not something that should be continued for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And we're giving somebody high dose steroids. What do we need to check regularly in these patients? You need to
1: check their blood sugar. Yeah
0: absolutely because it obviously can push their glucose up can't it yep okay so you've given them some steroids you've given them 60 milligrams of dexamethasone you've contacted the uh coordinator now we need to start definitive treatment now who's going to decide what that definitive treatment is
1: so you need to speak to a
0: neurosurgeon yeah or an oncologist yeah and they need to liaise absolutely so surgery as you mentioned is an option Um, so it's often the clinician and patient altogether will decide whether they are suitable for surgery and whether it's an option. And we know that patients who have residual distal sensory or motor function and a good prognosis should be offered surgery because they may recover some useful function. If a patient with MSCC is completely paraplegic or tetraplegic, For more than 24 hours, you should only offer surgery to stabilise the spine for pain relief because the pain can be quite exquisite. Again, patients who present with milder symptoms and who can walk but have retained some function, you should operate before they completely lose their ability to walk. That's really, really important. You want to try and preserve as much spinal cord function as you possibly can. Now, there are lots of different ways of surgery. It's not something we're going to go into today because I don't know much about neurosurgery, but you can do vertebroplasty. You can put some cement in there and strengthen the vertebral bodies. You can do vertebral body reconstruction. Um, but again, it's not something that we really get involved in. But our, what our role would be is to ensure that we get that patient strong enough for that surgery and that we prevent the complications.
1: Apart from surgery, what are the other options that we can use? So you can use radiotherapy. Yep. Uh, so targeted radiotherapy to where the the, the lesion is that's co- causing the compression. Yep. Um, and that's something that the oncology team would be able to tell you whether it's suitable for radiotherapy. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, going to use some radiotherapy, like you said,
0: targeted. Um, you shouldn't, if the surgery is planned, we don't use radiotherapy. If there's not going to be any surgery, then you can use radiotherapy. Post-operative radiotherapy is also good as well after surgery. Again, to help with pain is very useful. Um, so, but again, every patient's different. And also, it's really important that you involve the patient in the decision-making process here because sometimes they may or may not want surgery. So it's really important to involve them in their care. Okay, so we've investigated it, we've managed it. Can we prevent spinal cord compression?
1: So probably not entirely, but um, I suppose if you have a patient where you know that they might be at risk, is making sure that they know what symptoms to look out for so that if they do start getting pain or changes in Kind of power in their legs, or sensation, or these bladder and bowel changes, that they go and see somebody as soon as possible, Uh because the sooner they go and see somebody, the sooner it can be investigated and treated, and they might be able to keep more of the function if they do develop a cord compression.
0: Yeah, so patient education is really important, isn't it? Making them aware that, particularly if it's known that they've got spinal metastases, that this is a risk, and these are the symptoms to watch out for. So, other complications that may happen. When you have metastatic spinal cord compression, we've mentioned pressure ulcers, you may get post-operative complications, you may get DVTs, PUs. So if you talked about UTIs, obviously retain all that urine. They're in hospital, think about MRSA, infections. So it's huge amounts. So it's really important that these patients are treated appropriately. Prognosis-wise, um, it depends, I think sometimes on the underlying malignancy, and it depends on how far advanced it is. But we know that malignant spinal cord compression can reoccur in about 7 to 9% of patients, so it's pretty high. And if they've got multiple metastases throughout the spinal cord, they're more likely to reoccur. So guidelines that we can use for the management of MSCC are the NICE guidance, which is quite good, although it is from 2008. There is an International Spine Oncology Consortium Guideline, which looks at the management of spinal METs which is quite useful. And that sort of sets out how you manage it before it becomes a compression. But I think the key thing here is to get early involvement of the spinal cord coordinator and to get those steroids in and to monitor their glucose. So um, I think that was a bit of a whistle-stop tour of metastatic spinal cord compression, but I hope that we've definitely covered some key points there. I think the one thing is be aware of it. it's a possibility involve the patient in all of your discussions that you are having as well and not to forget how we manage their pain as well so pain is really important just realized we didn't mention it but make sure you get on top of that with paracetamol they may need some morphine based products be aware that that can cause constipation though so um and just as one last aside patients who are most prone to developing metastatic spinal cord compression are people with what type of malignancy? What malignancies travel to the bone? Uh,
1: so renal yep. cancers. Yep. Um, breast cancers. Yep. Um, thyroid malignancies. Yeah. Well, they may be less common to mm-hmm. start with. Mm-hmm. Um, prostate cancer. Yeah, absolutely. So METs to the spinal column
0: tend to occur in three to 5% of patients with malignancy, mostly in breast, which we said, prostate cancer and lung cancer lung cancer particularly can be quite high again it can happen with most malignancies but those are the most common ones okay Okay. thank you very much for your um, input today and thank you very much for listening to the rcp medicine podcast if you'd like to get in touch email at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet at amy burbridge goodbye